0: You'll join me in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, we continue this morning in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. This morning in chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 10 and 11. If you're using that Blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 981. The title of our sermon this morning is Sharing His Sufferings. And our keywords for our worshipers and training are Suffering, Resurrection, and Dead. I wonder if you know what a Batman is. I'm not talking about the popular comic book character with a sidekick named Robin, but rather I'm talking about the official position that was held by men who served military officers in England during World War I. The term Batman comes from the French word bat, which means pack-saddle. So a batman was the man who took care of the luggage carried on the pack horse or the pack mule. And in time, the word also came to mean an officer's valet who, among other things, took care of the officer's baggage. But generally, everything that he had need of, the Batman took care of. There are several fascinating works that have been published that detail the lives and the works of Batman. Some of them are tributes to Batman written by uh, their officers. Some of, some of them became very famous, like P.G. Uh, Wodehouse's Batman was parodied. There's a famous uh, British uh, drama comedy uh, called Jeeves and Wooster. So if you've ever heard the term Ask Jeeves, Jeeves was a Batman. That was his role. That's how he started. Likely more familiar to many here this morning is the character Samwise in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Well, Tolkien wrote that Sam was a reflection of the English soldier of the privates and Batman I knew in the 1914 war and recognized as so far superior to myself. And in time, the Batman became indispensable to all matters of the officer's life, so much so that they had no idea how to live life without them. One biography of a Batman was written by a man named William Hodgson, who said that his Batman uh, named Pearson uh, was so close to him, and he learned very early on that it was important to acquiesce to all that Pearson does. And he commented, he is my servant, and if he were commander-in-chief, the war would be over in a week. But I should get no baths, and so I'm glad he isn't. A good soldier servant is one of the greatest marvels of our modern civilization. Do you want a chair for the officer's mess? You have only to mention it to Pearson. Are you starving in a deserted village? Pearson will find you wine, bread, and eggs. Are you sick of a fever? Pearson will heal you from saving your life to sewing on your buttons, he is infallible. That's high praise coming from a master. But one of the things one learns from reading the stories about Batman is how the relationships that they developed were able to supersede every kind of distinction that might have been placed on them imposed on them, especially in the early 20th century. As you can imagine, A Batman and his officer were in very different social classes, which meant a great deal in England, and yet the grind of everyday life on the battlefield, the distinctions that would have otherwise kept them separate from one another in terms of friendship became non-existent. One officer wrote of his Batman, it was curious how intimate we had become, he and I, although at the time neither of us was aware of the incongruity. And so after officers saw these men who were willing to do all they did for them, they couldn't help but love them and and have hearts full of thanksgiving for all that they provided. In the Fellowship of the Rings, the character Pippin says to Frodo, Sam is an excellent fellow and would jump down a dragon's throat to save you. And no doubt Frodo was exceedingly grateful for the constant sacrifice of Samwise. It all reminds me of that proverb from Proverbs 18.24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We've all had friends of various kinds, various levels of access, various levels of intimacy in our lives. But there are likely very few friends that we've truly had who really know us. In time, an officer got to really know his Batman, and a Batman really got to know his officer, and those kinds of relationships in life are rare. They're few and far between. In, in good marriages, we see spouses that truly know one another. Sometimes, if we work with someone for many, many years, spending a lot of time together, especially if we, if we travel together, we really get to know each other, but What does it take for a relationship to be such that at some point all of the things that separate us, all of the things that make us distinct from one another, all of these things that differentiate us from uh, from one another in all sorts of ways, that all of these sort of disappear and we draw closer together and we stick closer together than a brother. That those distinctions no longer matter. That there's no thought about what it is. Or isn't that uh, the, the culture around us imposes on us in our relationship? When our text this morning, as we continue looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians, we come to see Paul's greatest desire in life. He wanted to know Christ to know Him intimately, to know Him personally, to have a relationship with Christ that was so close, that was so real. It was like a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And no doubt Paul would do anything to be Jesus' Batman, if you will. To serve, not only to serve Him as His master, to not only serve Him as the king of all kings, but to serve Him as His closest, dearest, nearest confidant and friend. The two verses we're looking at this morning are the favorites of of many Christians. But to read and understand them is is far more different than than applying them to our hearts and working them out in our lives as Christians. So, we're going to read our two verses, but I want to read them in the bigger context. So, we'll begin at verse 1 of chapter 3 and read through verse 11. So, let's begin Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh... and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now over the last few weeks, we've been considering Paul's lengthy paragraph here, beginning with this very strong warning against the Judaizers. He calls them dogs, evildoers and mutilators of the flesh. Remember, this is the same group he addresses in the book of Galatians. And they were the people who said, yes, it's important to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you also must submit yourself to all of the law of Moses. You must be circumcised. You must submit to the dietary laws. You must practice all of the ceremony of Judaism. It's also very important to do all of these things if you want to have true salvation. They insisted on all of this, and last week we saw Paul telling the Philippians, there is nothing to boast about in the flesh. They want to boast in their flesh, they're boasting in their flesh, and it will get them nowhere. But I tell you what, if anyone has reason to boast in the flesh, it's me. I'm your guy. And remember, he went through this long list of credentials that we just read. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Everything in his life aligned perfectly with what every Jewish man and especially every Judaizer would have wanted in his day. He was building up envy in the hearts of all who would hear what he had to say only to come back and say, and you know what about all of those things? Everything I've listed to you, everything they want that I have, you know what I think about them? I consider it all rubbish. I consign it all to the garbage heap. Because in the end, my great aim is not anything that has to do with my flesh. It has to be, it all has to do with knowing Christ and Him crucified. That I may gain Christ and be found in Him alone. My righteousness... My right standing before God is not found in me, it's not found in anything that I am, it's not found in anything that I have or anything that I've done. My right standing before God is on the merit and basis of Christ and Christ alone, by God's grace, through the gift of faith. And what we see this morning is Paul giving us this grand and glorious reason why he and we also can count it all as rubbish. Anything we've counted as gain and have falsely thought can make us right before God, outside of Christ. Why can we count it all as rubbish? What is our motivation? Well, Paul gives us four reasons this morning. And the first we see in the first part of verse 10 is that we need put no confidence in the flesh so that we may know Christ. So that we may know Christ. Are you truly known? do you know christ like a batman knows his officer are you that intimate with christ that you know him not just in name not just the words on the page but experientially in your life every day do you commune with christ do you know his nearness to you by the time of paul's writing this letter it was about 30 years since he had first encountered the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, where he first met Christ in such a powerful way. So this proclamation here from Paul isn't one of knowing Christ in a way that's like saying, I know that person, I, I met them at a party last week, or I've, I've been acquainted with them through the years. It's not about being introduced to him, it's knowing him. It's knowing Him in a way that a married couple knows one another after they've been married for 10 or 20 or 30 years. And even then, they continue to learn more about each other. They continue to know more about who they are and and what makes them who they are. It's a, a longing on Paul's heart to know Christ more and more intimately. This was Paul's ambition. He didn't want to put confidence in his flesh. That was useless. It wouldn't provide Paul with any kind of eternal hope or any kind of satisfaction or communion with God. He had a longing, he had a desire that grew deeper and wider in wanting to know the Son of God. But what is it that leads us to wanting to know someone more deeply, more intimately, more intensely? What is that thing? Well, it's love, isn't it? When a true friend becomes closer than a brother, when, when a spouse really begins to know the person they married, when a child becomes aware of how deeply their parents love them, when a Batman is close to his master, day by day, caring for his every need and desiring to see his life made better through his efforts, there's more than a sense of duty. There is a sense of deep and abiding love. A great desire to love and to be loved. Paul had a deep and abiding love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Where did that come from? It all happened because Christ first loved him. Remember a few verses earlier we just read? Paul admitted that he was a persecutor of the church. He killed Christians in the name of Judaism. It was one of his fleshly credentials that prior to knowing Christ, he stood on as his righteousness. Until Christ literally came and literally knocked him off of his horse, arrested his heart by the power of the Spirit, and made him into a new creation. Do you know? Do you know that God doesn't love you because Christ died for you? God loves you and He sent Christ to die for you. He loves you, and so he sent Christ to die for you. Do you see the difference? God doesn't love you because Christ died for you. God loves you, and so he sent Christ to die for you. It's an incredibly important distinction to make, because God's love for you is in spite of yourself. And that is far more profound, because it makes infinitely clear that his love for you isn't a borrowed love. It's it's provided Because God created you in His image. It's not given to you on the same basis as your salvation. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian on the basis of Christ's life and Christ's work on your behalf. Living perfectly, dying on the cross, being raised from the dead. That's where your righteousness is found. But the love of God? God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Christ living to fulfill the law perfectly and dying on the cross and to receive the penalty for your sins. Christ being raised from the dead, He did all of that because God loves you first. Do you ever consider how deeply satisfying that can be when you set your heart to truly know Christ more fully? We set our hearts to know a lot of people and a lot of things, But do we have a love-born desire in our hearts to know all of Christ? In practice, what does that look like? It looks like knowing His Word. Because it's, it's through His Word that we know His work, and we know His commands. We know what He calls us to. We have to know God's Word if we are to know Christ. But the more we know of His Word, the more we know Him, and the greater communion we can have with Him because we can be reminded of all of the great truths of Scripture. Christ died for me. Christ will never leave me or forsake me. What can we take away from this love of God? And who will remove the love of God for me in Christ Jesus? Neither death, nor famine, nor sword. God is for me. Who can be against me? Where does all of that come from? What is all of that? It's it's the way that we preach to ourselves from the Bible. And the more we are able to turn to God's Word and remember God's Word and be reminded of all that God's Word has for us, the more fully we are able to commune with the Savior. Because He's given us promises. And that's the way He's given us to know His promises. And then, out of the thankful overflow of the heart of the Christian, loved by God, we radiate a true desire to know Christ all the more. And it's in our, the way that we live our lives. It's in the way that we read the Scriptures. It's in the way that we pray. Do you pray that way? Lord, I want to know You more fully. I want to know You more intimately. Do you pray that? Maybe you don't pray that because maybe you've never known Christ. If you're here this morning and you, you don't know Christ at all, I'm, I'm talking about a friend who sticks closer than a brother. A Savior that's been given. And He gave all that you might have life out of a pure, unadulterated love. And He calls on you by faith to put all of your faith and hope and trust in Him alone. Well, the second thing Paul shows us this morning... The middle part of verse 10 there is that we ought to put no confidence in the flesh so that we may know the power and fellowship of Christ. Paul shifts now to knowing the power of Christ's resurrection and to sharing in or having fellowship in Christ's suffering. So, resurrection power and fellowship in suffering. Do you ever? contemplate the power of Christ's resurrection? Now, I'm not talking about the power displayed in the resurrection, but rather the power that comes as a result of the resurrection. That's what Paul's referring to here. This is, how, this is what he wanted to apprehend. This is what he wanted to know. What comes out of the power of the resurrection? I can think of many things, but there's, there's four here I want to highlight. The first is this. <coughs> Evidence... That Jesus is truly the promised Messiah and that he had come to do the Father's business as the Son of God. That's the first one. That Jesus, we have evidence of Jesus being the promised Messiah. When Paul was at Antioch, he made this point. Remember, Paul said this. He said, The promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus again. So the promise was fulfilled, and we know it was fulfilled because Jesus was raised from the dead. And so his resurrection was proof that he was sent by God, and the power of God was with him. Jesus made a covenant with the Father before the foundations of the earth, the covenant of redemption. And as he came to fulfill that covenant obligation to live a perfect life, to die a sinner's death, the reward of doing all of that was that he would be raised from the dead to reign and rule forever from the Father's right hand. And so the Son of God fulfilled all of his obligations doing what the first Adam could not do. And here's the reality. If Jesus was never risen from the dead, our faith would lack the chief cornerstone that makes any sense at all. If there is no resurrection, remember, Paul deals with this back in 1 Corinthians. If there is no resurrection, we don't just get to shrug and say, ah, well, no big deal. We tried. It turned out to be a lie. No big deal. No. Paul says, if we believed in the resurrection, and in all of this believing, we're, we're staking all of our eternity, all of our hope on the resurrection... If that's not true, if that was one big lie, we above all men that have ever lived in this world are to be pitied because we've believed a foolish lie and we still have a big problem. Because our salvation, our right standing before God would still depend on us. It would still depend on us fulfilling God's perfect law because Christ would still be in the grave. And a dead Christ is of no use to us. If you take away the resurrection of Christ, the Christian faith is a lie and we have no evidence whatsoever that Jesus indeed was the Christ, the Son of the living God. But you see, the resurrection is proof of Jesus' being the promised Messiah. And so that once shy and confused fishermen and tax collectors and a doctor and a Pharisee, that they could now boldly proclaim with a single, singular focus because they ate and drank with him after his resurrection. So they they were sure they weren't deceived, so much so that they were willing to die for this. Peter and all the other disciples declared without hesitation, this Jesus, God raised him from the dead, and we were all witnesses to it. They were sure that they saw the man who died on Calvary alive again, and they could only testify what they had heard and what they had seen. And so the power of the resurrection, in one way, is found in the evidence of Jesus being the promised Messiah. The second thing coming from the power of the resurrection is a freeing of all who are in Christ from our liabilities in the courtroom of God's justice. Jesus was, if you will, discharged from the grave, having paid the penalty for sin because he satisfied the claim of justice. For all who have faith in Him. All that the law could do was deemed paid for by Christ. The soul that sins shall die. And Christ died taking on that penalty. There's no getting away from that. But Christ is the substitute. Christ is the sacrifice who came into the world to fulfill the legal burden. So for all who are in Christ, the legal burden that is rightly ours to carry was paid. And the risen Christ is our receipt for that payment. Jesus rose in justifying power that we would have a receipt to show that we've been purchased by his blood. He cried out on the cross, It is finished, it's done, and the Father endorsed his claim by raising him up from the dead. A full pardon is yours if you are in Christ, it has already been declared. And so I wonder, do we contemplate the power of the resurrection in thinking about our own justification? The power of the resurrection is found in our forgiveness in Christ. Paul experienced this power when he was transformed from a self-righteous way of life to becoming a humble follower of Christ. And now his desire is to live in this present life In the same God-given power, he called it the, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This is why Paul lived. This is how Paul lived with resurrection power. The third thing we see from the power of Christ's resurrection is its provision of life. Since Christ paid the penalty for sin, which is death, we no longer have to fear death because we have been promised by faith in Christ a full everlasting life. He laid his life down and he took it up again that death might be defeated because only he has immortality. This is what Jesus meant when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Christ and life are not two separate things. And so if you have Christ, you have the resurrection. And if you have the resurrection, you have life. Think of it, Christian. You were once dead in transgressions and sins. You needed to be brought back to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's powerful. You were granted life. You were raised from spiritual death that you might live forever and ever. Our risen Redeemer is the Lord and Giver of life. Well, the fourth thing from the power of Christ's resurrection is the offer of consolation. There is a consoling power that reminds us when we mourn, when we mourn the death of those we love who are found in Christ, that because of the resurrection, we have the promise that their life will continue on with Christ forever. The words of Charles Spurgeon on this point are far greater than anything I could say. Spurgeon preached this. He said, He is the first fruits from among the dead. The cemeteries are crowded. Precious dust is closely heaped together. But as surely as Jesus rose from the tomb of Joseph, all those who are in him shall rise also. Though bodies may be consumed in the fire, or ground to powder, or sucked up by plants, and fed upon by animals, or made to pass through ten thousand changeful processes, yet difficulties there are none where there is a God. He that gave us bodies when we had none can restore those bodies when they are pulverized and scattered to the four winds. We sorrow not as those that are without hope, we know where the souls of godly ones are. They are forever with the Lord. We know where their bodies will be when the clarion blast shall wake the dead and the sepulcher shall give up its spoils. Sweet is the consolation which comes to us from the empty tomb of Jesus. God hath both raised, us, raised up the Lord and will also raise us up because of His own power. That is the power of the resurrection, of the promise of the resurrection, that we are promised, we are given consolation, that in death we truly find life in Christ. This is the apostolic longing. It is the desire that God is pleased to fulfill. And that is what we must faithfully pray. Lord, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. Well, Paul also mentioned here in verse 10 the fellowship of his sufferings, or more literally, that we may share in his sufferings. This goes hand-in-hand with the resurrection. Just like if you think of Good Friday and Easter Sunday, they go hand-in-hand. One doesn't make sense without the other, right? They work in tandem. They provide a way of knowing him more. Now, back in chapter 1, Paul used the word fellowship to discuss the Philippian partnership that he had with them in the gospel. And then he mentioned that they were partakers or fellowshippers of grace with him. In chapter 2, he talked about having fellowship in the Spirit. And now he comes and he says, that we want to have fellowship with Christ in his suffering. Who wants that? Listen, Paul is not very good at laying out a good church growth strategy. Imagine that in our flyers we hand out around town. Come suffer with us. (laughs) I don't think that will work very well. But for those who have hearts set on the Lord Jesus Christ like the Apostle Paul, it would work because he recognizes that suffering, suffering is an essential part of knowing christ more fully in a way that he desired to know him the reality of the christian life is that we will all face suffering of some kind and paul references it frequently luke tells us that that he and paul returned to the churches of asia minor and it says encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of god Paul told the Thessalonians, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. Paul informed the Romans that that suffering is a, a prerequisite to being glorified in Christ. Remember he said, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided... We suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And of course, remember back in chapter one in verse 29, Paul, uh, Paul said he should, we should not believe only in him, but also suffer for His sake. Suffering for Christ is a divine gift from God. It's a sign of sacred intimacy with the Lord Jesus. The fellowship of Christ's suffering moves the believer beyond the role of beneficiary of Christ's death to a sharer in his sufferings. The suffering that comes to a Christian as a Christian is not a sign of God's neglect. It's rather proof that His grace is at work in our lives. Because He he sustains us. He gives us perseverance. And through our suffering and in our death, we find Everlasting hope and peace. The fellowship of Christ's sufferings is the fellowship of elevated souls who are growing in their knowledge of Christ, in the fellowship of continual resurrection, in a display of God's power. But we we, we need to remember that this desire to fellowship in Christ's sufferings is coupled with a desire to know the, the power of the resurrection. The power of Christ's resurrection first provides the strength and the motivation for suffering. No man or woman can embrace the fellowship of Christ's suffering who do not know the power of Christ's resurrection. They must go hand in hand if you have come to Christ and know the power of the resurrection, if you've been raised from the dead to new life in Christ, if you're experiencing the ongoing resurrection of new life in Christ, then you can face anything in this world, anything the circumstances of this life will throw at you, because you have the promise of hope that will face every, every suffering that may come to us. Do you want to know Christ like Paul wants to know Christ? then we must share Paul's longing as our own longing. And we must receive the sufferings in this life, not as these things that were meant to cause us to stumble or trip us up or or drive us away from God, but as graces from God to make us more like Him, that we might know Him more intimately. Our third motivation this morning Paul gives us is, At the end of verse 10, he says, Put no confidence in the flesh so that you may be like Christ. Very quick point here. The next factor in knowing Christ that Paul lays out is becoming like him in his death or being conformed to his death. The sense here from the way the text is constructed is that Paul is being conformed to Christ's death by the transforming activity of God And that is an ongoing daily process. The process is best understood of a a cycle of dying and rising with Christ. It's found throughout Paul's letters. It's it's being plowed under the ground and brought back again. Daily, we're plowing ourselves under that Christ would, would powerfully show us the power of the resurrection, that we would be brought to new life in Him again. And that's so that we never live unto ourselves, we never live for ourselves. Remember in Romans, Paul says what everyone wants to remember and repeat, and it's such a great promise that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. But why does He do that? What is the purpose of that? What is the meaning of all of that? It is so that we would be conformed, we would be made all the more like Christ. So all the things that God's working together in our lives are not so that we would just have a peaceful, easy feeling in this life. It's a great song, but we don't want that in our lives. That's not what we're longing for. What we're longing for in this life is that we would be conformed all the more to Christ's image, that we would be more like Him. That's Paul's prayer here. To be plowed under daily of ourselves, that we might come back again daily daily. More like Christ. And Paul experiences the power of the resurrection and is strengthened to participate in Christ's sufferings. He's being conformed to his death. This is a process. All of these personal crosses produce a series of of many resurrections that take Paul even deeper into personal knowledge of Christ. And maybe that's a bit confusing, but here's the bottom line. Paul wanted to take up his cross, and face whatever came to him in life, that he might follow Christ more faithfully. He wanted God to conform him to Christ's death. Isaiah tells us that Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And Paul understood that taking up his cross, this is is a part of life that comes with being a Christian. It goes hand in hand with suffering that I might be like Christ. That I might know something of His death. Daily dying to ourselves to live to the advantage of others. That's what Christ did, didn't He? That was the life of Christ. How do I know? How do I know when I'm being conformed all the more into the image of Christ? When I more readily, more faithfully, more thankfully give of myself for the benefit of others? When I think less of me and more of my neighbor, because I've thought less of me and more of Christ. That's the life we're called to, putting no confidence in the flesh, but confidence in Christ that we might be more like Him in death. That's how we know more of Christ. Well, much more to say on that, but let's press on to our final point this morning in verse 11. Paul shows us to put no confidence in the flesh that we might attain the resurrection. Paul concluded his desire to know Christ by expressing all of this in a somewhat mysterious way. He says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, was, was Paul uncertain here? Was he certain, uncertain of his participation in the resurrection? Well, not at all. This isn't an expression of uncertainty. The resurrection was certain, but the intervening events, that's what was uh, uncertain to him. The timing, the circumstances. But would he die and later rise from the dead? This he knew. Did he know when? No. Would he remain alive and undergo transformation into his new resurrection body? He didn't know all those details, but he did know emphatically that he would experience resurrection out from among the dead. And what would be his great prize? Certainly a new body. Certainly everlasting life. But that is not the prize that Paul so coveted. You know, often we talk about the Christian life and what awaits us beyond this life. And so often we talk about bodies that no longer suffer about the pain that no longer exists, about sin that no longer exists, and yes, and amen, and praise God for all of those things. But if that is what we are longing for above all else, we've completely missed the mark. For Paul, it wasn't about a new body. It wasn't about the certainty of everlasting life. The prize that Paul wanted was Christ himself, knowing Christ and being with Christ forever and ever. When Saul of Tarsus experienced the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, he cast away all of his accomplishments and he rendered all of those things rubbish because he no longer wanted to live upon himself but wanted to know Christ. That I might know him, he said. This was his day in and day out, unremitting, relentless pursuit. Paul sent his brilliant mind to know everything about Jesus that he could, seeking him out in all of the Old Testament scriptures. And before he came to Christ, no doubt Paul was an expert. Paul was an expert of the Torah, all of the sacred writings, and likely he had them in his head, he had them in his heart. So so during all of his years in learning, as he's in Arabia learning Christ in all the Scriptures, as we see so clearly illustrated throughout the epistles. Paul was learning more and more from the apostles, from others who knew Jesus, who walked with Jesus. He heard from them, but it was never knowledge about Christ that he sought ultimately. It wasn't just about knowing what the Scriptures said. We can know more about the Bible than anyone we've ever met before but if knowing the truth about Christ from the Scriptures is our end, we've, again, we've missed the mark. We want to know the Scriptures so that we can know Christ, so that we can have communion and intimacy with Christ, not just so that we know the words on the page. Having communion with Christ ought to be our aim. And all the Apostles' powers were concentrating on knowing Christ personally. The power of the resurrection had dazzled him on the road to Damascus. And he never got over it. Every day was his personal resurrection day. An affirmation that he had been raised with Christ. So Paul kept seeking the power of the resurrection as an avenue for knowing Christ more deeply. More personally. More intimately. And in turn this enabled Paul to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And to further increase his intimacy and knowledge of him. Paul passionately sought the fellowship of his sufferings as a grace for his soul. So he continually was being conformed to Christ's death, being conformed to God Himself. He had the divine imprint of the cross and a growing knowledge of Christ. And so Paul looked to each day with confidence because he knew that the great resurrection was on the horizon. And that brought Him into all eternity. There's no doubt that if any of us knew today would be the final day of our lives, we would wish that we had made Christ a greater aim of our existence. But as it is, we all have time to pray, and we will pray now, that we might know Him and the power of His resurrection, that we might share in His sufferings, that we might become like Him in His death, That by any means possible, we might attain the resurrection from the dead. That ought to be our prayer. Let's make that our prayer. Will you pray with me? Oh God, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You that You loved us. And because You loved us, You sent the Lord Jesus Christ to live and die for us. And so this morning, we pray, oh God, that we might know Him that we might know Him more fully, more completely, with greater delight and satisfaction, that we might know the power of His resurrection, that we might share in His sufferings, that we might be conformed all the more to the Lord Jesus, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible we might attain the resurrection from the dead. O God, may the longing of our hearts not simply to be Uh, not simply be to know more about Christ, but that we would know Christ and commune with Christ and have intimate relationships with the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray You would do this, Father, that You'd be glorified in our hearts and in our midst as Your people, that You might give new life to those who are dead in transgressions and sins, that we might live fully, completely, and joyfully, knowing and being known by our Savior. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.